0: Thanks for joining us. Um, I just I can't really keep a straight place sitting here talking to you. Thanks for the invite, Crush. It's, uh, it's good to see you. Um, well, we obviously know each other very, very well. Played of footy together. But I must admit, doing some research for this conversation, there were two points in particular that really made me laugh. Yes. Go on. The first. We, as a part of your bio, you were the Australian captain for the Kabadi team.
1: That's right. It's, a, it's an amazing sport. It's an amazing story. Um, come out of nowhere, actually. Yeah. yeah I, it was a couple of years ago. It was grand final week, or just leading up to it, and I got a call out of the blue by a guy called Bruce Cater that actually does some player management. He manages, uh, well, did manage Andrew Bogart, Matthew Dallavidova. Yeah, what is Kabadi? Uh, Well, I was getting to that. Kabat is, it's like British Bulldog, I reckon you could describe it as, but um, on a a matting floor, like a volleyball court. Yeah. Seven a side with a line in the middle and you've got to go across the line and there's a... Uh, there's a raider, so the, the person that goes across mm-hmm. has to chant the word kabadi for the whole 30 seconds. Yeah. You get a 30-second raid. Yeah. So you're, you're on there kabadi, 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 kabadi. <laughs> and you've got to try and touch uh, the opposition and get back across to your side, and you can do it by foot, by hand, any means possible. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the best way to describe kabadi. There's not many rules. So, so the one thing that strikes me about
0: this is that it's a religion in India it is huge and you
1: went to India for this World Cup of yeah Well, I had to captain my nation didn't (laughs) I mate (laughs) Um, a bunch of misfits we were thrown together uh, in about a week and we were allowed to take 14 on our team but we could only manage to scrounge up 12 and upon arrival we found out that two of uh, the Australian members um, weren't eligible to play. Um, one wasn't an Australian citizen yet, um, so he wasn't allowed to represent the country. And another one had been found guilty by Asada of doping when he tried out for the Australian wrestling team. So immediately, our 12 was down to 10. Yeah. Opening night, we took on the host nation, India, India. Who were also the reigning kabadi champions. In a stadium, like oh, in front yeah. of the a crowd. The How crowd? Many people, oh. TV. It was on Star Sports, and I know that 280 million people tuned in. 280 um, million. So the AFL grand final gets about, it peaks at about four and a half, five million. Yeah. Um, and we're lining up, singing the national anthem, arm in arm, and literally had no idea what the rules were. That's and we're the Australian team. Anyway, India took. Took it easy on us, yeah. and like they beat us easily, but they could have absolutely destroyed us. And and that was kabaddi, and we were involved in this tournament for seventeen days. We took on England, um, Argentina, which we won, so it was Australia's first ever win in kabaddi. Yeah, it's a good little trivia question <laughs> on the track when yeah. kabaddi grows. Yeah. And and then Bangladesh and South Korea yeah. destroyed us, and that was the end of the tournament. And and just quickly before we get to something a little more substantial, um, the other headline that
0: I. Couldn't help but laugh. Was um, Harold's son Campbell Brown dog,
1: father in law's toes gone off by a chihuahua? We she just happens to me and my family, it just follows me. Um, <laughs> just quickly, what was my, my wife Jess's father Tom? Diabetic, um, never really looked after himself too much. He ne- can now long, no longer feel his feet yep. because of the diabetes. Yep. They had a little pet chihuahua called Sable which sleeps on the end of the bed, and um, a very cute little dog, like it's a miniature chihuahua, actually. He woke up one morning, uh, the day after Derby Day, actually, and um, Jess had received a call saying, your father's in hospital, there's been an incident overnight. Um, Woke up, bit of blood on the bed, looked down, missing his right big toe the dog had eaten it off in his sleep and because he has the diabetes and can't feel his feet he couldn't feel it so the dog just kept going emergency surgery amputated the the big toe there was no way of saving it Um, anyway classic story and uh, very serious he was in a moon boot your big toe Mm. you need for all your stability and things um Thought about giving the dog away. The, the, the possibility got thrown around. Did he actually, you know, put it down? Like it's tasted blood now. Like Vicious. It's, it's like a shark. You yeah. I've just got the taste of like, it. Decided not to. <laughs> Love the dog. No issue with it for about another eighteen months. Um, wake up on a Wednesday morning to another call saying it's happened again. Uh, <laughs> Sable had eaten off Tom. <laughs> Left big toe <laughs> this time, gone again. So, again, hospital, surgery, now he's absolutely cast, like can only walk. And the dog. Gave the dog away. Couldn't have. Um, but now the dog's back. Like, they love the dog. It's back. I think it was just an aberration that just happened twice. So Does he sleep with shoes on? Uh, well, yeah. He, he, I just said, lucky that the dog didn't sort of move further up the bed because um, he <laughs> sleeps naked. So, it's, it, I mean, the big toes probably the least of his worries. <laughs> um,
0: for one reason or another, weird stuff does happen to you, um, and and whether in part that is. Is that due to your upbringing? Mal being your father, Kay of course, mum, but Mal's a personality himself.
1: Yeah, I, I think we, we like life experiences. We put ourselves out there. We're out and about doing funny things, you know, travelling a lot and things like that, and just embrace life. And then if, when you do that, naturally obscure things tend to happen yeah. rather than if you're just, you know,. Um, in the one spot at the one time, doing the same thing over and over again, and yeah. your life would become a bit mundane. So, no, nah, the old man um, is, is a genuine character. Like, um, I know people see that, you know, of what he's like on the outside, but he's, he's a genuinely funny, funny man um, and just a funny dynamic, our family.
0: Yeah. yeah. What, what sort of, an, what sort of an influence does Mel have on, firstly, your know, sort of childhood, but then football as well?
1: I oh, massive influence. He probably he probably taught me uh, what it took to to get there. Um, not a not one of the parents that are, that are overly bearing or pushy, but certainly honest. Um, always provided context in terms of the game. Highly educated in it, not done as a player but as a coach. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of knows what it takes to. For you to be the best, you know, even right up until my last game, you know, like game 204, he'd still sort of flick me messages, you know, on the, the week leading up to it saying, oh, you know, you thought you'd fumbled a couple of ground balls during you know, during the game, maybe get the coach to kick 20 into your hands or you missed, you know, you looked a bit slow off the mark, why don't you go and do some speed work. So just always, um, just driving you to, to not probably become um, complacent, I think. Yeah. Um, just continue to work on your game your craft to be the best you could
0: as you developed as a player you know, even as a you know, school schoolboy playing were there any moments where you thought well oh, dad you've stepped the mark there
1: yeah a couple of times yeah like um, I, I remember I was in a year 10 or year 11 playing for the Scotch first 18 um, and going okay but like and had a really poor game this one game against Halebury or something Um got home that night and, and the old man was absolutely just, just disgusted with my performance and let me know yeah, to the point where we didn't speak for a couple of days. I thought he overstepped the mark. Yeah.
0: Um, did, he, did he clip you over the head? or anything? No, nah, like,
1: no, nothing you? like that. But just like he just gave me a real good spray, you know. <laughs> um, and he didn't do that often. And, you know, if, if I thought it was warranted, I'd cop it. But yeah. I didn't think it was warranted on that particular occasion and neither did... And my mum, well, my mum, I could have done anything and she would have been in my corner, so um, yeah, but saying that, you just, you just dust yourself off, yeah. and play the next week and go again. But um, no, huge, huge support. Hawthorne, born and bred, obviously
0: grew up in Hawthorne and went to school at Scotch. Um, and you were part of the, it's the 2001 super draft, but that the super draft in very commons with Hodge, Ball, and Judd almost. Overshadowed the super draft of Hawthorne that particular year with John Turnbull, and you were integral part of that to what was to play out and used to come.
1: Uh, yeah, but also, you know, Rick Ladson was part of that draft as well, and, and so was Simon Cox as a, a mature age guy. Um, he was Hawk's last pick in that draft from the Doggies, yep. and he had a really good couple of years. You know, not that was under Schwabby's era, yep. not not. Clarko and the rebuild of the club but I think he can become second in the best and fairest and and so so that draft for Hawthorne, John Turnbull was Hodge, um, Daniel Elstone who um, didn't go on and play any games of footy but he was an elite junior. Um, Ladson 18 or 17, um, myself at 32, Sammy Mitchell at 36 and then Simon Cox. So hindsight's uh, obviously a, a great thing and you look back on that draft for Hawthorne. It's produced two premiership captains and, and you know Hall of Famers. Um, you know, I, I ended up playing 159 games for the Hawks and, and played in the premiership and Rick Ladson played probably 130 or 40 and had a lot of injuries and stuff, but he was a, a star as well. So yeah, Johnny Turnbull nailed the draft, but unfortunately the way footy works and everyone wants immediate sort of um, effect and, and answers mm. he ended up losing his job at Hawthorne at the end of 2004 because he ended up choosing Hodgie ahead of Chris Judd now hindsight will tell you now 15 yeah. 16 years later that is actually well I mean not that one's better than the other but how can you lose so, your job of picking Luke Hodge at number one
0: which, which was amazing right because Judd flew out of the blocks right Borley was flying at that stage early in his career as well and, and we had Um, fat hodgy effectively
1: yeah he was overweight do you know what he was just your classic country kid um, that was adapting to life in the city as a professional footballer when he probably didn't really have any idea what it took and um, it took him not just a year or two it probably took him four years to start to you could argue even longer maybe Um, you know what to eat how to prepare for training what to drink? Uh, he, he loved to drink, Hodgie, and, and, and sort of still does. But um, and yeah, it just just took him took him a while. He got drafted on the back of just being unbelievably talented, and he, he always had that hard edge which John Turnbull loved, um, and that, that's probably the only reason he ended up picking me um, because he just loved players with that hard edge, and Sammy Mitchell certainly had it. Um, I went way earlier in the draft than I probably should have, purely because. Um, my old man was very good friends with Kevin Sheedy and he got wind of the fact that Essendon had picked 47 and they were going to pick me with that uh, and, and Hawks had picked 48. So that was going to be the pick I went to Hawthorne. There's a sliding doors moment, at Hawthorne or Essendon. Well, it, yeah, exactly right, because there's no club that I hate more <laughs> um, than Essendon. Um, and you're right, So, so we sort of mentioned that Essenham were going to maybe pick me at forty-seven, so John Turnbull um, decided not to err and and wait to see if I was still around and say so use pick thirty-two on me, which yeah. was a second rounder, which I, sh- I shouldn't have been. I mean, you could almost argue
0: that Hodges' emergence was mirrored with Hawthorne's and most pivotally, pivotally, due to Clarko's appointment
1: and Andrew Russell's appointment, I think yeah. is is in, important there because. Um, under Schwaby, who was a great coach, gave me my first opportunity. Um, he was very different style to Clarko, um, and I think at that time Hawthorne sort of had, we bottomed out a little bit. we finished fifteenth, won five games. Clarko came in, and he was sort of he was ruthless. You know, as you know, he's just ruthless about everything. Um, how we trained, even the facilities at um, Glenfrey Oval they weren't weren't great, so we moved to Waverley as part of the journey. Yeah. The Kakoda, which we, you know, we've quite often spoke about as Hawthorne, that was the first thing that he really did as a coach, sent us over to Kokoda, which I think is the best thing I've ever done. Um, and that, that sort of helped build what the club became. But Andrew Russell came with Clarko, and he is the most driven human being I've ever met in my life, I reckon. And he rode all of us, but in particular guys that he thought had more to offer. Yeah. And, and Hodgie was one of those... Do you
0: have a a moment or an occasion in your mind that best exemplifies Clarko's ruthlessness and Andrew Russell's drive or Um, standards and expectations?
1: Oh, well, yeah, all through our first two pre-seasons under Clarko, so November, December, January, sort of leading into 2004, so he got the job in September 2004, so leading into his first season 2005, and then even to 2006, um, you know, guys like if you missed, a, if you're running late to an appointment, a massage, you know we're down the St Kilda bars at six am on our day off, and quite often when forty four people need to get to the bars um, by six o'clock, one of them sleeps in or runs late or can't get a park, so he gets there at two minutes past six. Well, guess what? We're back there the next day, which is not our day off, at five, um, and you know we did that. I've lost count of how many times we did that sorely, but it would have had to have been over that 18 month period 20 times and probably 10 of them was act Dawson you know there was always a couple that were repeat offenders yep. um, but it just drove the group to get the little things right to the point of well you know the players started to take a bit of ownership themselves because if we knew you were going to sleep in or be late we'd make sure that we rang you in the morning to get you there um and I think when we started to sort out those little things then it was easy to to get the things right on field and from there we progressed quite rapidly
0: and so we're we're glossing over quite a bit here but that ultimately led to 2008 Premiership um, of which is our 10 year reunion this year
1: should we have won that day? Um, Statistically no Um, and in terms of the injuries as well. Definitely no, we lost. Uh, we lost one of our most important pillars, Trent Crowe, halfway through the second quarter when his foot exploded, and he actually never returned to play ever again. And then we lost Clinton Young, who at that stage was probably um, not many people would have known too much about Clinton Young, uh, um, and he was probably leading the Norm Smith Medal um, up to halftime. Yeah, I'd say without a doubt he'd been best on ground at halftime. And Two minutes into the third quarter, he does his ankle so badly that he can't return. We had Chance Bateman going down the race a couple of times with shoulder issues and all sorts of things. So um, we were down to one on the bench for periods of time. We uh, were getting beaten in clearances, inside 50s, you name it. You know, all the key performance indicators that basically say that you know, you're in the contest. We weren't, but we had uh, enormous belief that um, a style of play with the full ground press that had sort of was innovative, mm-hmm. and at that stage, not many teams had worked out how to get through it. We come up against the Geelong side that, no doubt, thought that they should have won that day, and they played for the first time in my life arrogantly, I think, because um, they were the most selfless team in the comp. Mm. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason on the day, they did some uncharacteristically selfish things, and they kicked inaccurately, and we had some acts of individual brilliance from Cyril and um, from Dewey and, you know, yourself played brilliantly. And, you know, we were down on the day in terms of our better players, um, but collectively we, we won a game that we, we shouldn't have won, but um, it was it was worthy. I think we were worthy of winning it. Yeah, no, don't We just... didn't steal it. Like no, we no, we didn't. we
0: didn't steal that. You touched on a point. Our belief was enormous um, and I wouldn't go so far as to say we had no right to have that level of belief, but Geelong had been clearly the best side during the year. Yeah, no doubt for the two years.
1: Where, where did where did that belief come from? Uh, well, the coach, yep. the game plan and structure that we absolutely believed in. Um, we knocked off Geelong in two thousand and seven, um, and we pushed them in about round seventeen or eighteen. We played them at the Journal Friday night. And we lost by seven points, and we should have won. Yep. Um, and even though we lost it, I think that's the first time I mentioned. You know, remember, he called a team meeting on the Sunday, which yep. he never did, and said, "Boys, I think we can win it. We, we've got a lot of work to do between now and the end of September, but I would think we can win it." And you know, that instills in a young arrogant, like, like we were. We not arrogant, but we were young and cocky, and yeah. we had Buddy who had kicked a hundred goals, and we had Ruffy and Jordan Lewis, and who were playing good footy. We had good, solid leaders like yourself, and Chance Bateman and Michael Osborne and Mitch and Hodgie playing good footy and yeah we had, we had genuine belief that we could knock them off I went into that day thinking we'd win yeah. and then thinking at half time we should be a mile behind and we were in front yeah, uh, yeah. what what's
0: what's Clarko's greatest attribute as a, as a coach what makes him different from the rest
1: I, there's multiple things one he's innovative which I think tactically you need to be if you want to stay ahead of the curve. Like I think a lot of clubs see what last year's premiers were doing and then try and replicate it themselves, which doesn't really work. It might work for a little bit, but if you if you want to be ahead of the game, you're coming up with things that they're all trying to replicate. So innovation, um, his people management skills, I think, are brilliant. Um, he just knows how to push bloke's buttons and when to give him a whack, when to give him a cuddle. Um, genuine care amongst the players he's got. Um, and he's got that ruthless streak in him that I think you need. He's prepared to make big calls on superstars of the game. I I just laughed when I heard all the journos and everyone talking about Clarko because he got rid of Mitchell and Lewis and those guys. Um and Caroline Wilson come out and said oh, he's, he's ripped out the fabric of the footy club and things like that. Like they've got no idea what they're talking about because you don't move them on, you don't get Tom Mitchell, Jay Mira yep. into their footy club. Um, they play for another year or two, and then you move them on because they retire. But you're two years further back from winning your next premiership. You yep. know he's in the premiership winning game. He's not there to make top four, make top eight. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's it's a multitude of things, but the one thing that you love as a player is that you've, he's always got your back. When's the last time, you, or when have you ever heard Clarko come out and give the, his players a clip in the media? No, no He's no, never no. done it. Um, he's He's got grizzly with journals that have written stuff. You know, yeah. the question, Richie Vanderberg and is he in the best 22? Well, that journo copped an almighty spray, didn't they? You know, And as a play, not just... Vanders sees that, but the rest of the playing group see that and he goes, you know what, you know, he, we're in this together. It's mm. not senior coach and players and, you know, it's, it's, it's all in the trenches yeah. together. I, I think that's as important as any of it. Yeah,
0: so obviously 2008 Premiership, 2009 then went on to be your last year uh, at... Uh, 2010 went on to be your last year at, at Hawthorne. Nine of them didn't play finals. 2010 we played one final. Yep. Yeah. And then traded and you
1: were the heart and soul of Hawthorne at this stage as well yeah I well it was it was a, it was a funny period at Hawthorne's. obviously the excitement and build up to the flag in 08 unexpectedly win it as a young group with that comes the pressure the outside noise the internal expectation mm-hmm. like the doggies are probably experiencing right now and we, we had reasons why we didn't play that well in 09 we had some in, like, obviously Trent Crow never played again we had a lot of surgeries, post-08 and injuries. The other big thing was it's probably the one year I reckon we went into the following season and thought we'd play exactly the same way as we had been mm-hmm. and not try and evolve or change anything. And the, all the other clubs had caught up and they started to do what we were doing better. Yeah. Um, and as a group, I think we learned a hell of a lot from that, especially Clarko and, and the, the group, which helped in 2009 and ten, and the failure help drive the premierships of 12, 13, yeah. 14, 15. But um, I, sort of the game had evolved. They brought in the chopping of the arm rules. I'd gone from being a key position defender to... All Australian. Yeah, which position. was which was a great honour. Um, but to a sort of swing man, which is important, you know. Yeah. We, you, need, you need to be able to have multiple strings to your bow, but went from being a pretty important player at the club to play forward for a half, down back, off the bench, come on, do a few things. And um, 2010, I was sort of talking to Clark about I want to get back to my basics of being a a defender. He thought that uh, I was a forward um, or a a defensive forward. And um, I just felt like my position in the team, while it was safe at that stage... Wouldn't be for very long when you got guys like Bruce, yeah. Suckling, Geray, Stratton, you know, real... You could see they were going to be good players. Yeah. Some of them I didn't see going on to be as good of players as they were, but they could play and they were young. Um, and so I sort of just read the tea leaves a little bit. I knew that um, Clarko's ruthless, you know, and he, he doesn't mind moving players on. Yeah. Um, when he thinks it. he can't get the best out of them anymore so when the offer from the Gold Coast came through it was a bit of a no-brainer um, in terms of longevity and the, the people out there go oh you, you took the money to go to the Gold Coast well um, anyone that knows me knows my complete lack of respect for money I actually money plays no part in my life um, but I was 27 it was like play for the Hawks for one more season then probably play Box Hill for a season then be yep. thanked for my services and retired at 29 or go to the Gold Coast three years so you're automatically playing to 30 young group your body's right you might get another year or two out of it which I end up getting another contract I didn't play for 2014 season but I got four years at, or, or two and one of them at Box Hill so um, leadership I always, always sort of aspired to leadership at Hawthorne but it never was really there yep. Um, and went up to the Gold Coast where you're immediately you know you're a leader better contracts. yeah it was, it was just it t- you know it's one of those few times in your life that it just ticks every box you go on really good terms with the club that you're at um, you yeah, know no animosity at all and always will be a Hawthorne person but it was just a really easy decision as hard as it was to leave the club you loved and the players and success and yeah. everything Bit Of a no brainer, you, you go from being an, an all Australian
0: premiership player at Hawthorne, an established club to the Gold Coast, uh, notwithstanding the market itself up there, but a start up club as well. How challenging was that?
1: Yeah, it was really hard, um, and there's only seven of us, you know, as senior guys, uh, so you've got and they were allowed list concessions as well. So I think there was like it was like 45 or 50 young guys mm. so we were allowed another 10 players or something up there um, in our first couple of years and they're so young they're 17 they, they just they don't know what they don't know so they've got to learn everything from the coaches and the players about AFL footy um, and yeah you're right like Hawthorne had a culture had really strong game plan structure you know history um, you go up there and it's, it's a blank canvas there's nothing um, and, and I would still say right now, the Gold Coast Suns um, and GWS to an extent, no real fabric to them because they've just been plucked from all parts of the, the country, different clubs thrown together, um, haven't tasted any success yet, um, been hard work, no real supporter base, fan base. Just, yeah, it's, it's a challenging, challenging with those expansion clubs. But um, Gold Coast was... First year was great because it was exciting and everything was new. You know, first, the the unveil of the jumper, um, your first win, you know, the the first um, opening of Metricon Stadium, which was full. uh, That was exciting. We got three wins, which was probably not a bad year. Look at Carlton, they mightn't have three wins this year, you know, and this was our first year. You had no real expectations. Exactly. And then year two comes along and the expectation is you'll probably win five because you won three the year before and the players you got 15, 20 games under their belt. But second year blues happens to footballers, but it happened to the whole footy club. (laughs) You know, because every player, like Zach Smith, couldn't have had a a second year like he had the first because he was unbelievable. Trent McKenzie, you know, Harley Bunnell, Brandon McTeer, all of a sudden the footy world knows how they play, what they get up to, the way the Gold Coast are playing a little bit. They put more time into the club. So we... We fell away and set in year two. And the expectation was we'd improve because we had so many draft picks and things like that. And, and when we were getting beaten, who was copping it? The senior guys. And when I say the senior guys, Boccy had a broken leg, so he wasn't out there anymore. Gary Albert was winning Brownlows and he was unbelievably good. Cracker um, had retired already. He'd lasted about seven weeks yeah. of a three-year deal and retired. So... It all fell on Brennan, Rish Catali, myself, and Harbrow, as you know, the senior guys up there that are, that aren't worth their pay packets. Yeah. Which was some of it was absolutely fair, and other times it was just completely unwarranted. But it's just, it was a funny dynamic that i would never had at Hawthorne because you just play your role, you do your job, you get fifteen touches, you, know, you do yeah. the tackles, smothers, whatever, and you you know, you know he played his role. And then all of a sudden you go to the Gold Coast, and because you're one of the senior guys, that role that you'd build a career on wasn't good enough anymore. You'd need more. You'd need to get 20 touches, and that was an aspect I struggled with a little bit. Because so,
0: so, so now knowing what you know, given the you know the, the startup club, what what could have, what should have, what could have happened differently, um, terms, you know, recruiting philosophy, the, the, the creation of the culture the leadership challenge notwithstanding the guys that couldn't get out
1: there yeah your recruiting is only as good as the development program you've got at a footy club I think so is um, one more important than the other uh, well you need to get them both right but you can get you can make a player a better player in a really strong club with a good development program and structure
0: if, if you've got a million if you've got two million dollars right one million dollars for a recruiting program and one million for your development program. Do
1: you split it equitably, or does the one going there's more going one pot than the other? Um, No, I'd say more which should go into development program, Um, because once you've got the cattle that you've chosen in the national draft or rookie draft or whatever, if you can turn them into good players or better players because of your structure, your game plan, their roles within the team, and the development of those players, and and do it quicker do it in two years instead of four or whatever, then you'll be competitive. You'll be a really good side. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that the Gold Coast at the start just needed to be a bit, like, across the board, the leaders, the coaches, everyone just, this is how we're doing it. This is the way, whether it's right or wrong, we're doing it this way and bang, go for it. It was, it was very much... We'll just play the young kids, get some games into them, um, teach them the run and carry and the offensive side of the game. And once they get to 30, 40, 50 games, you know, the defence will come, they'll be better because of the experience and things like that. And it just never worked out. Um, there's no doubt that, that across the board game plan and structure, we needed to be harder with the young guys to give them a blueprint of how they should play. And if they deviated from that, then. You know they caught their whack, they get dropped or whatever. But um, players weren't really getting dropped when they should have, and they're getting played to the point of yeah. losing all confidence. Um, and not, I wouldn't say we're on the same page off like as a as a footy club in terms of the way we wanted to play. Clarko had a blueprint. Bang goes in one side, goes out the other. You come out the back of stoppages. This is how we play. Everyone knows it. Um, up there it was just we'll play and see what happens on natural talent which I don't think talent wins your games no, foot. no, no it doesn't
0: regardless of who the coach CEO or the president is, will are they sustainable
1: is a is football club sustainable in that market oh, it will be because the AFL will make sure it is they've poured too much money into it to make sure that it fails but um, I don't know I just look at like hindsight's a great thing and, and I learnt more in my three years at the Gold Coast than I, than I did at Hawthorne because you come from Clarko and Hawthorne the way he did it to a brand-new club, and then you work out what made Hawthorne so successful, oh, that and that and that, and what made the Gold Coast, you know, struggle a little bit, oh, it was that, that and that. And from a business, from a life, from football, whatever perspective, you, you, you learn those lessons. You'd never know if you just stayed at the Hawks all the time because it's the only thing you know. Mm. Um, but I think the one thing that the AFL and the Suns erred on was... Not enough experience and leadership up on the Gold Coast. You know, Travold was the first-time CEO. Marcus Ashcroft was a first-time football manager. Blue McKenna, a first-time senior coach. You know, he'd had some experience over in the Waffle. Um, but he, he's the big dog now. He's got to run it. Um, Gary Abbott was a first-time um, captain. You know, myself and, and uh, Nathan Bock were first-time vice-captains. Um, across the board... It was learn-as-you-go a bit.
0: Yeah.
1: And we had we Dean had Solomon, who was a, who just out of the game, was a first-time assistant coach. Shane O'Bree, the same, first-time assistant coach. Young and learning as you go. Whereas the Giants went out and they got Kevin Sheedy. You know, had been there, done that for over 27 years. Um, to compliment him, they get Mark Williams, premiership coach in his own right. Then they go out and they get Gubby Allen, who you know, had been in footy for 20 years, knows all the tricks of yeah. the trade. Um, and top them up with uh, Dean Brogan, Chad Corns, James McDonald, who was a captain at Melbourne in his own right, Lukey Power, all these guys that have just been around forever. And and I don't know, I just think when certain things arise in football and life as they do, yeah. they had far wiser heads uh, up there on how to deal with certain situations than we did at the Suns. Yeah. So you, you touched on the importance of,
0: of leadership within that young club, um, that first year... Round two, the red mist just came over your eyes a little bit, and <laughs> uh, things got out of hand somewhat.
1: Oh, yeah, they did, and and that, look, um,
0: so specifically, I think it's suspended for four, four games for two separate
1: instances. Yeah, and yeah, and and look, I didn't go into that game. Yeah, you know, I never went into a game thinking I'm going to get suspended, but but I played on the edge. I knew that I had to play on the edge to get the best out of me because I wasn't, you know, great decision maker I was highly skilled I wasn't a running machine you know yeah. I, I had to I had to bring aggression and just the 1% of spoils tackles chases you know yeah. all that sort of stuff to warrant AFL selection week to week and, and um, we'd come off a you know, 100 point loss to Carlton in round one it was a the first game for the Gold Coast. And it was pretty embarrassing, actually, because we thought... We went to that game... you know, not thinking we'd win, but we thought we'd be competitive. Got absolutely pumped. Fly to Melbourne round two, playing the doggies that Eddie had. Um, and, yeah, I just... I threw a backhander to Callum Ward. Um, you know, expecting to strike him, but not expecting to hit him on the end of the chin and, and knock him out. And that it's was... More an elbow than a
0: backhander. Yeah.
1: Um And end up copping my right whack in fact I I probably it's one of the few times in my tribunal history that I think I got off lightly Um, I I should have got more than two weeks for that but in saying that I bumped Barry Hall um, a quarter later in a legitimate attempt to get you know there was a 50 50 ball we got there contest and I got reported um, for making contact to his I didn't hit him on the head but it was um, high contact because I got him on the neck and he got up took the free kick kicked the goal sort of didn't even remonstrate. And I got two weeks for that. Yep. Uh, I, I always think four weeks was right, but I should have got four for the Callum Hall one and none for the Barry Hall one. So um, t- it's funny how it works.
0: You, I mean, you've had a sort of a different relationship with the tribunal, um, and on a separate occasion, you were fined $15,000.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was for uh, that was the interesting one for, um, for lying to the tribunal. Yeah. Um, as when Chris Jard got reported for eye gouging um, as a West Coast player down in Tassie, and it was reported on the spot. Um, eye gouging you? Yeah, eye gouged me. Yep. But the way the media reported it was that my eye socket attacked his finger, <laughs> which was typical. A vicious, ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is typical, and I, and I loved I loved that side of the game. Like, um, I, I very rarely got upset or, or wound up um, off field, as you'd know, Sool, a pretty yeah. laid back sort of guy. Yeah. But I did take a bit of exception to the point where, well, th- this is an incident that I've had nothing to do with, yet I'm absolutely copping it yep. in the press. I was like, oh, it doesn't add up. Like, I'm the victim here. But um, I'm anti-establishment, so there's no way on earth I'll ever give favourable or, or unfavourable evidence to, yep. you know, t- to the tribunal. So I did my absolute best to get Juddy off. Um, in exactly. fact, I just blatantly lied to the tribunal, which there <laughs> should be more of, by yeah. the way. All these medical reports <laughs> that are too honest to just give me the shits because um, they crucify players. Yeah. You know, they, they turn a one-weeker into a four-week because a doctor decides to write that, you know, um, he's feeling nauseous. Well, your medical report said your, your eye detached the, <laughs> yeah, the the retina. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I lied to the tribunal and I, I, I went on the couch um, with Mike Sheen and, and Robert Wall. So the couch is Monday night. It was it Tuesday? This was a week or two later. Okay, we're yeah. um, so going to later. So you got gone strobing all. Juddy got, got a, a week. week. Nobody knew, right? Juddy's got a week. Yeah. And he challenged it, um, and then I gave my favourite levers. He got off. Yeah. And then I think he played that week, and then I was on the couch and the following. That,
0: that story week. didn't bury them uh,
1: effectively. it was a little bit. Um, I just I remember roughly. roughly um, Juddy said something in the post tribunal press conference that just rolled me a little bit like basically saying that I'd somehow initiated or you know I'd done something in the pack that yeah. had caused him to react and I don't think I had so um, I was like oh you know, I'll, I'll eventually go. get the story straight at some stage it just happened to be I was on the couch um, the, the following week and Mike Sheen just very good journalist because if he have said to me oh, did yeah. you lie to the tribunal Oh, I would have gone, no. Yeah, can't say yes. Because you can't say yes, you know. But he said, Oh, Campbell, um, did you tell a fib at the tribunal to help Chris get off? The fib sounds. He's softened. Apparently he Brilliantly done. Um, and I said, Yeah, well, of course like, of course I did. I uh, who would want to see the Brownlow favourite, Chris Judd, get suspended. So of course I told a fib to the tribunal. That's that's I think everyone should sort of yeah. not help. and did the rest of the interview and got off air and didn't think much of it and, um, and Mark Evans rang me. He goes, mate, great interview. There was a footy you, manager at the footy of the Hawks. Hawks. Yeah. Great interview. I thought you, you did really well. Handed yourself Well, but There could be a bit of backlash from the Chris Judd fibbing comment. <laughs> and, you know, like, I go home that night, don't think much of it and the next day, back page. Brown admits lying to the tribunal, bringing game into disrepute. Adrian Anderson wanted to give me three weeks suspension. Hmm. And I said, hang on a second, how can I, Juddy's eye-gouged me and got one week <laughs> and I'm getting three weeks which is three times as bad as an eye-gouged for just helping him out here. One's Chris Judd, the other's Camel Brown. You've got to apologise. You know, I've brought the game into disrepute. <laughs> You've got to apologise. I'm not apologising. I like <laughs> I'm, I'm refuse to ever apologise if I feel like I'm not in the wrong. <laughs> and so we compromise, I caught $15,000 fine and um, I reckon I sent Juddy an invoice uh, <laughs> and I'm still waiting I'm still waiting to, <laughs> to hear back from that so um, yeah that's, that's a true story and you know what if I had my time again I would do the exact same thing I'd lie to the tribunal I'd cop the fine and move on because I, I, that's just who I am like, yeah. I, pre- I much prefer to be in the right side of the law it's Somewhat of a cavalier approach to football and to life post
0: footy um, English Channel. What on earth in your what on earth could possibly make you want to attempt to swim? And I say attempt, attempt to swim the English Channel.
1: Um, it's a funny one. Like what what seems extreme and out there and crazy to some, doesn't appear that to me. Hang on, spending
0: effectively 18, 19 hours trying to cross a channel is no. extreme to surely everyone.
1: Oh, but I don't see it that way. I just saw it as another challenge, and, and I'm very goal-orientated as a person. Um, so I'd had a 13-year you know, footy career um, and finished quite abruptly up at the Gold Coast, a bit unexpectedly. So I'd gone, I'd gone basically from training for the 2014 season to play AFL footy to finishing my time on the Suns Um, having Christmas with the family, moving back to Melbourne by January and was like, what am I going to do with my life? Didn't have any job offers. Um, Sort of had just got married and I was like, what am I going to do? And I I knew that I I was young and, you know, I was still young and fit and um, I thought, what can I do that sort of gives me a goal moving forward post-footy? Because I reckon a lot of players finish their careers... And they're lost, right? And they just don't know what to do, either physically, mentally, or, or work-wise, or anything. And then they fall into the, the trap of, you know, going down the path of drinking or gambling or whatever it may be. So, um, I thought, well, I like swimming. I hate by that stage. I hated running. I, I pushed myself to the, the absolute nth degree, just holding on, you know, trying to hold on for as long as you could, footy-wise. So I started swimming and 1K became 2Ks, I'd wake up in the morning, have nothing to do, what am I going to do today? I'll have a coffee, read the paper, I'll jump in the pool and, and I'll set myself these challenges. Well, why don't I do 3Ks today? It didn't matter if I was in the pool for one hour or five, I had, I had nothing to do, you know? And it was a good way of keeping fit um, and you think a lot while you're swimming as well, so you just think about life, or you could switch off and, and then I was like, yep, I'm going to try and swim the English Channel. So. That was like the biggest swim I could think of. Like, I could have done a lawn beater pub, but that's one point two k solely. So it's 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 quite funny how you can build up quite quickly swimming wise because I built up to ten k's. Like, I'm I'm talking ten one k's in the space of like six weeks.
0: Yeah. So you've woken up, decided
1: right, I like swimming.
0: I'm going to swim the English Channel. Um, coach. I mean, how, how do you how do you then go from being that to actually? Logistically pulling
1: together. Oh, you Google it and find out what's in, what it entails. I rang a family friend called Shelley Taylor Smith, who is a legendary swimmer herself. She was a marathon swimmer. And I rang her and sort of just floated the idea. I said, "I'm thinking about doing this English Channel. Would you coach me? Is it possible that I can get it done? Um, and I'd love, I'd love your support." She said, "Yeah, sure. When are you planning on doing it?" And I said, "Not this." Sh- July but the next so I gave myself 18 months Mm -hmm. and she's like absolutely let's do it and um coached me through there was the swimming component which you know was okay coming out of professional footy where you're so regimented like that was the the easy part yeah she'd send through a program and say you're doing this and it'd just get done but the putting on the weight was a bit of a uh a challenge I didn't anticipate for a bloke that was so anal about his diet um all my career, like, I never ate any bad food, skin folds of 40, less than 40 sometimes, um, to all of a sudden hear her say, you've got to get to 100 kilos of fat. You know, I played at 85 kilos. So I've got to put on 15 kilos of fat purely so I can survive hypothermia. And it's a little logistically tough to get there, but in terms of you actually have to put on the fat or you could die of hypothermia. So... That was the reality. So if that's the if that's what I need to do, then I'll do it. It's like a method actor, you know. Like, <laughs> so I put on all this weight, um, just ate everything, like ate everything, meals, yeah. dessert, drank in a stout at night, like, which I hated, but yeah. apparently was fatty. And then, um, yeah, went over to went over to do it. You were there. Yeah, it was tough. It was started off a beautiful day. A
0: glorious but, morning. Um, so you've got right so. Morning of, you've got your family there and you've got a few mates there as well and you've been spruiking it throughout the year to raise money for a good cause. Yep. Um, so there's a, a camera and a news crew to be there. Yep. Um, you set off that morning and it's a glorious morning. Couldn't no, have got a better day, day could you? Yeah.
1: Um, most – you get a one-week window. So for the people that aren't aware of how you're swimming, you swim – you ring a boat captain, you get booked in for one week um, because the weather conditions are so inclement that you don't have to often get too many windows. It's good. So we waited three or four days, got the call the night before, meet us down at the harbour at like 5am. Um, Saturday morning, you're going to set off. And, and you were there, we got there, it was beautiful conditions. Um, you put around the corner out of sort of the Dover harbour, around the corner to Shakespeare Bay, Jumped in the water, swam to shore, stood on the pebble rocks. He sounds a siren like the footy siren. And you just take off towards France. Yep. Preferably Calais, because that's the closest point. But um, conditions were beautiful. I'd swim every half an hour, stop for some food and drink, and it's just literally just swim until you get to France. My mindset was like, right, oh, well, you've got this is your day, you've been training for for 18 months. You've got great conditions. Um, if you just keep rolling your arms over, you'll get there eventually. Even when you're fatigued at 12, 13, 14, 18-hour mark, whatever, if you're still moving forward and swimming, you'll end up getting there. So you set
0: yourself a window of 16 to sort of 20 hours? Yeah,
1: I was, I was sort of 16 to 18 hours because yeah. my, my pace, I wasn't the quickest, but yeah. I could just continue. Um, six hours in, I'm flying, like through the English waters, through the English shipping lane, we get to the separation zone, which is halfway, um, just moving towards the French shipping lane. So six hours, I'd gone over halfway, which is 20-plus kilometres. And then the weather turned and, and the wind picked up, which meant that it become a bit more choppy and got worse and worse. But to be honest with you, these were the conditions I had in my mind that it would be like, you know, in a way. I didn't anticipate it to be so flat and yeah. beautiful. So... I just kept thinking, all right, next half an hour feed. Stop, food, drink, next half an hour feed. And it was getting tougher and rougher and I was getting thrown around a bit. But like I told you, my mindset was just, well, I know I'm moving forward, my arms are rolling over still, so this weather might mean I'm 20 hours, but I'll get there. And, and unbeknownst to me, um, the weather was so bad that I was actually swimming on the same spot for three and a half hours and my, my boat captain knew and the crew knew but they didn't have the heart to tell me they could have pulled me out at seven and a half hours or eight and a half hours and they they wanted to feel like they gave me absolutely every chance until it got to the point where the weather was so bad and we're talking like 50 kilometer an hour winds and sort of three four five meter swell um that the boat captain blew the whistle and said Campbell um we're abandoning the swim and I'd been swimming nine and a half hours. I'd come here with one goal and one goal only, and that was to swim the English Channel. Like you said, we talked it up uh, to raise money and awareness for the Shane Warne Foundation, and um, I, I didn't want to fail. Like, to me, that was a, that, not getting across was a failure. Even though the, the, the swim was abandoned by the boat captain and not me, um, I wasn't happy with that. So I was like, nah, mate, get stuffed. I'll see you in France. And that's when he said... You've been swimming on the same spot for the last three and a half hours, and like then, just all the fight that you've got in you just finishes because I knew no matter what, like even if I ignored him and kept swimming, I actually wasn't getting to France at all. So yeah, that was pretty disappointing. Um, pretty disappointing that you you set yourself such a challenge, and you don't you don't tick it off. And even though it had nothing to do with, I prepared physically well. I still feel like you know I, I could have got across, but. The weather on the day is one of the big obstacles of the channel and far greater swimmers than me haven't got across because of the same reason and, and worse swimmers than me probably have got across with you know with that element of weather. Two days later, he, um, somebody else crossed it and they, they made the swim. Is that right? Um, it wasn't two days. I reckon it was about a week later, yeah. like That storm that come in yep. um, meant there were four, five, six days of a complete blowout and the next people were waiting in Dover and, and then they got the nice day and you go across yeah. and... It was, yeah. But that's, that's the way it is, unfortunately. And, and I hadn't anticipated for one second that I wouldn't get across. No. Because I knew physically and mentally I, I would push myself to get there. I didn't anticipate the weather turning like it did on the day. And, yeah, still, I, I still get a bit frustrated about it in a way because I don't like sort of feeling like the job only got half done.
0: Yeah, yeah. Goal orientated, you
1: need that mental challenge stimulation. What's, what's the next one? Oh, after the swim, I had sort of twelve months of nothing. Um, I was just physically and emotionally just flattened by it, and then, then you feel like a bit lazy. So I started running again, and um, it's funny if you don't have people telling you you have to run every day, you actually can go for a jog and enjoy it. And I started to do that, and um, so I spoke to a couple of mates, and again I was looking for something to do, maybe a marathon. Why do the Melbourne Marathon when there's an Antarctic Marathon? <laughs> on, makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to head down there um, in middle of December. Antarctic. 42.2km in Antarctica. Um, on, a, on, on ice, on snow, on a glacier? It's, it's on, the, on the glacier, but they've, they've got a snowmobile that they'll, um, they'll, they'll do a path. Like there's two laps of a 21one one kilometre sort of course. Um, so they'll mow they'll it so it's going to be snow but it'll be more compact it's not going to be like I'm running in six inches of powder and, and so does that mean you're wearing your 2012 pumas? <laughs> I'd probably need to go to the, uh, oh, to the store and buy some no you won't need them, spikes no you, you won't it won't but be it's... runners like we run a tan in yeah. but it'd be runners with the extra grip for off road running yeah, you yeah. know I reckon so but I'll play around with that but yeah that, that's exciting so I've been sort of back running, sort of 20, 30, 40, 50 k's a week and really slow. Like, everything I do is slow. It's, I'm not going down there to, to run a four-hour marathon if it takes six hours. But it's a, it's a great experience because I'd never go to Antarctica otherwise and to, to do it with a couple of mates, sort of, yeah, it, it, yeah. Gives you that, it gives you that goal, gives you something to focus on for the year, keeps you motivated. Um, you end up with you know, lifelong mates out mm-hmm. of it and you've had a great experience. You know, I'm not doing any charity side to it this year. It's been pretty low key until you asked about it just then. That um, We'll just go there, do it, and hopefully finish. That'd yeah. be good. Um, and, uh, and add another life experience on.
0: Of your football career, what what moments stand out that you're most proud of? Um,
1: yeah, good question. Oh. Never really thought about it. You know, like, I got asked the other day, what's the best game of footy you've ever, you've ever played in 12 years and 205 games? And I can honestly say, irrespective of the size of the game or the result, I think the best game of footy I ever played, personally and structurally to the team, was the 2008 Grand Final. Hmm. Because I started forward. Um, Tom Harley played on me. And I always played forward against Geelong because Clark I had a theory that they were vulnerable to quick, elusive, medium-sized forwards that could mark above their heads. And that's why Ruffy and Buddy never got hold of Geelong. It was always Mark Williams, Michael Osborne. Myself uh, kicked, you know, when I say bags, a bag for me was three, you know, but I did that multiple times against Geelong. So I started forward on him, kicked a goal, set up a couple of goals. Crody breaks his foot, goes down. He's out for the game. Um, I need to go from forward pocket to fall back on Cam Mooney, who was on fire at the time, and, and try and nullify him to win a premiership. You know, like, there's there's no more daunting task than that. Um, and did that and, you know, kept him... He, I kept him goalless in the second half. He helped me as he missed a couple of shots on goal. Um, but just one of those days where every time I touched the ball, it just turned, turned to gold. Like even my missed kicks you know, hit players... Um, took some intercept marks in important times. And just, yeah, I just... Yeah. Which is funny because I had games where I kicked more goals or had more possessions and things like that. But I was never your your 30-possession player or, your, you know, like I was just a role player that just um, tried to play his role the best he could. And, um, yeah, it's it's funny. that I, I really enjoyed playing the State of Origin game. That was... Yep. A novelty, yep. but to play, you know, coached by Bomber Thompson, play alongside all these guys, wear the big V, and, and who knows, it might never be played ever again. Yeah. So it could be the last time anyone represents a big V. That was a great highlight. Um, I, I love, you know, I love going to Ireland, playing under Kevin Sheehy in the national rules, Croke Park in front of eighty thousand Irish. I, I, don't know, I loved the game, mate. I loved everything about it from all the way through, and even. Even some of the periods that you know the club aren't going great, or you're out with suspension, or some or some big injuries. Um, I like the challenge of getting back and proving the point that you still got it. You can, you know, things yeah. like
0: that. So, of those of those moments, is there anything you'd is there a time you'd have again where you wished you didn't do oh. that or
1: say that or
0: well, it's easy to in such a way.
1: It's easy to to look back and say, oh yeah, I'd change that. Oh yeah, I wouldn't elbow Callum Ward. Yeah, I wouldn't. You know, um, finished my career at the Gold Coast, so I did. But I reckon if you go back and change things, you're not the person you are today. So um, I, I, you know, I learned from some of them. I learned who was in my corner uh, in some of them. And when blokes just you know, desert you or don't have your back that you thought they would, I learned, you know, heaps of things from those periods that I reckon have made me the person I'm today. And so I I wouldn't go back and change anything, Um, even though that probably surprises you or probably doesn't surprise you. I'm pretty stubborn, but in saying that, in that moment, I genuinely felt it. Calling Lordy a sniper, you know, what he he did to you that day. In that moment, I genuinely felt he was was a sniper and he'd done it a few times and things like that. So why not be honest and just come out and say it? and, yeah, it caused a shitstorm and my relationship with Lordy now is great. And do you know what? It always was great. It's just we had a little bit of animosity in yeah. the two hours we played Hawthorne and Essendon. But I love that rivalry. Yeah. It was real back then. I look at Hawthorne and Essendon now, their games, like nothing. There's no passion. There's no, nothing. Not as much feeling.
0: And that's probably... We'll finish up shortly. That's a, a good segue in terms of your honesty in the moment. You're particularly active, and at times provocative on social media.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say provocative. I'd say... Opinionated. Yeah, I I, I put my opinion out there, which I firmly believe in, and it's an informed and educated one, and naturally a lot of people disagree with it. You like that? that Yeah, but I don't do it to be provocative. I do it because that's my point. That's I've read something or I've felt strong enough to to post a tweet. I love Twitter. Yeah. and Brown <laughs> Dog So, but I don't actually do it to to rile people or anything. I just put my opinion there and naturally because of how sensitive and um like like everyone in today's society just seem like they're just enraged about something and they're just always looking they're looking to be offended, which is just pathetic. Like enjoy life, it's great. Yeah. Um they naturally just get offended by it and it's water off a duck's back to me, like it doesn't phase me in the slightest. But I don't I wouldn't say I do things or say things to be provocative. They're just my opinion and I'm, I'm firm on them and I hate fence sitters because you should have an opinion, you know, on things. Yep. And when you have strong opinions, naturally you, you have people with strong opinions the opposite way and that's life and that's good debate. You know, it's, if it's educated, it's healthy, but it's when people start getting personal and a bit vile and, you know, like I could say... The sun, you know, The sun shines beautifully today, and someone would write, you know, you're, you're a dog, you're a coward, right? things like that. So, I mean, to to that point, how then
0: do you insulate? I mean, the young young players coming through today, right? The draftees coming in. Um, there is a sort of a school of thought, or the the challenges surrounding mental health, and whether that correlates with social media. No doubt. Um, so what's your advice to young guys coming
1: through? Do not engage on social media. It's really hard, Sully, because um, there's no doubt that social media today, more than ever, and we sort of got it we started in it a little bit. Yeah. And like I said, I, I, I love Twitter. You know, I have Instagram, things like that. But I reckon Jakey Lever stopped. He, he deleted all his social media, um, maybe – after the first couple of games of this season when he was copying it. And look at his form now. There's no doubt that um, I've got a really thick skin and have uh, luckily had no sort of anxiety issues or mental health issues or anything like that. So when I get abused on social media or or targeted or whatever, I literally laugh. And sometimes I find it hilarious and other times I just disregard it, but it has no impact on me at all. And I can honestly say that. But if you weren't as th- thickly skinned or you, you're a bit vulnerable and you've played a few bad games and you're getting abused by your own supporter base, not just the opposition, but your own supporters and people are coming with nasty things, no doubt it would impact people, you know, And which then causes a bit of a cycle because then, you know, they're flat, they're down, um, they don't probably want to tell people um, and they keep it insular and then they play another bad game because... They're worried about what people are going to say and it's just a snowball effect. So I don't think you can tell kids these days not to have social media because that's their life. That's how they interact with people. That's where their friendship's based on. They need to build up an immunity to
0: it. Is that where you sort of, A little bit,
1: yeah. But that only comes with being confident in yourself, I reckon. Not, like, if you genuinely don't care what people have to say, then you won't worry about it. But if you do, like, the only... I'll say to the footballers, the only people that they need to answer to are the 21 other teammates and their coaching staff. That's it. Supporters, nuffies, trolls, everyone out there that don't understand their role in the team or what's going on day to day. Who cares? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a footballer there to play footy for your teammates, do whatever it takes to win. And have success, and from that will come a boot sponsor and a car sponsor and media work and whatever. Yep. But don't try and appease everyone, and, and try and go down that path. And look for it. That'll come if you play good footy and you're successful and everything. I just think some young kids today they yeah. they want it, right? They want it in Year Two, rather than in Year Six. You know, after they've built up four or five years of really good solid base of football and everything you know so it's it's a good debate to have and there's no right answer because you can't just say you're not you know no draftees have social media yep but they need to understand that if they are putting themselves on that platform they need to be open to not just all the pats on the back when they're playing well but the negative stuff that comes the other way and it's not right it's not right If you're putting yourself, you can't, you can't, you have that both ways. I mean, you you can't. To a degree, yeah. I know what you're saying. You're putting yourself out there. So, but like, you need to understand that some of the stuff is going to come, no matter if you're a good person, play well, you know, whatever. It's just going to come because people won't like you because of the perception they have of you or because of the jumper you're, you're in, not because they actually know. The person you are yeah um we'll wrap it up after this but quickly
0: uh, word association oh yeah first thing that comes into your mind when
1: i say Kabadi. india <laughs> gary ablett freak al clarkson uh, genius shane crawford probably the best person i've ever met It's a good one lance franklin uh, You're thinking? Yeah, I have to think because he's been he's just been such a exciting. Is the word I have? I'm so glad that I was playing the game to kick his hundred because I don't think we'll see it again. Um, and he's—he's he's an enigma, yeah. as you know. Like we're—we're yeah. we're very close to him, but we're so far as well. Like yeah. we don't really know Bud, even though we played with him. You know, okay, there's uh, so much more of this we could unpack. Um, trick, Road. Unusual, but a terrific heart. Jared Ruffin, uh, great leader. Luke Hodge, the general. What else can you say apart from the general? He, he's a star. Sam Mitchell, uh, driven. Whose book
0: of Luke Hodge and Sam Mitchell will you read first?
1: Well, I've heard that I've heard that Mitch's is going to be more controversial or very controversial. So yeah. I'll probably read that. Um, Purely because of that, not because of any other reason. Okay, Gil McLaughlin, uh, doing a good job. Wayne Carey, the King. Luke Darcy, great man. Darcy. Brian Taylor, humorous. humorous.
0: Um, who was, who was the best player? Two two questions. Is who was the best player played with, and who was the, the most, most talented?
1: Well the, well, the most talented, the best player I've ever played with was Gary Ablett Jr. Freak. Like, I'm talking super freak, mate, what he did on the Gold Coast for those three years before he hurt his shoulder. Yeah. Go and look at his numbers and watch them and appreciate them in a losing side with no help. Unbelievable. Best player I've played with... So if he's the, is he the best player or the most talented? Well, well, he's right. the best I ever played with, right? Was there a player with more talent? But... I... Oh, no, he's the most talented. But I want to say, like, the, like I look at the best player I've played with as, like, someone that just goes out there and plays their role every week. You know, like, that you could go to war with and know they get the job done. Um, so it'd probably be you, Sully. Cool. <laughs> I like that. Um, so I don't equate best player with Gary Ablett, you know. like yeah. But um, you won best and fairest and, and played well in big games and things like that. Um, on talent, but like we're not talking Franklin, you know, Judd, Hodge, yeah. Mitchell, Abbott talent. Thanks, Bear. <laughs> well, I <don't> hope <laughs> that's <as> a compliment. <laughs> very much so. Not um, um, the other way. What right. was what was the best advice you've received? Uh, the harder you work, the luckier you, you get. I know it's an old cliche, but I reckon that um, it's pretty apt. Like if if you take that approach to everything you do. Good things just happen to you when you don't expect them to. Last time you cried. Oh, I reckon I shed a couple of tears when little Boston was born. Yes, that was an emotional day. Um, but he's good. He's seven months uh, old now, and he's got some little there. character. He's, he's going to be an absolute lunatic, mate. Oh, well, he's got no choice. And I'm going to encourage cool him. His <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to encourage him to to be a, a free thinking. <laughs> Don't conform (laughs) to the norms and have fun. You've got to have fun in life, mate, because who knows how long we'll be around for. And I'll make sure that I have plenty of fun.
0: And you're clearly very, very passionate about the game. If you were Gillian McLaughlin, if you were the CEO, what would you change?
1: Oh, I get sick and tired of hearing journalists and people that haven't played the game for 30 years talking about everything that's wrong with it like the game is great yes we have some average games and yes there's some congestion at the moment but like everything in life if you, if you make a rule change for this something else will bob up that we didn't anticipate um, that clubs or players will use to the nth degree to, to get an edge yeah. um, I think the showdown the other week absolutely superb game You know, Richmond versus West Coast on the weekend brilliant game there's always going to be some average game, goal kicking, and things like that. But I hate hearing all the negative talk about rule changes, capping in the interchange, bringing in, you know, bringing in. Um, you have to have six forwards, and you know things like that. I don't know. I like the game; it's exciting. Um, I think I get as frustrated as anyone at the match review panel rubbing players out like Nick Nat Nui for tackling and Mm -hmm. I understand the head sacrosanct and all this and that word duty of care is thrown around now by lawyers and and attorneys and QCs and tribunals when you're out on the football field playing and you're trying to do your best and shepherd and block and bump and tackle and things like that they talk about equating players height and weight when they're tackling smaller guys like do they understand how farcical it is um, and if they'd played the game at the level that we have, mm. they'd understand that that's just nonsense. I get frustrated at that. Um, mm. But apart from that, game's in good shape. It's easy for me to whack the match review. <laughs> you know, I, I, people, you know the funny part. Every time I do, people go, oh, "What would you know? You, you know, you just uh, if anyone." Should know it's me. I have my doctorate. There as many, I that? have my doctorate in match review <laughs> panel, negligent, reckless, and <laughs> intentional. You know, like that's my that's my wheelhouse. Yeah, my word. It's not not um, kicking or decision making off the halfback <laughs> flank on two k time trials or any that garbage. <laughs> Campbell
0: Brown, Premiership player, All Australian, national kabadi captain, free thinker, and a very loyal friend. Thank you for your chat.
1: Thanks, Crush. We're talking foodie.